This is a becoming creature. A quick note for this episode, I ran into some technical difficulties and ended up relying on my backup microphone, so the audio isn't as high quality as I usually like it to be. That said, it's still a lovely episode, very much worth hearing. Johnny and I talk about New York, what it's like to work in the social sciences, the effects of online dating, tribalism, polarization, belief formation, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am excited to be here with the juicy, jocular, generous, and generative Johnny Nelson, who builds virtual things to simulate concrete ones. You can find him on Twitter at Generativist and on his website at generativist.falsifiable.com. Of course, handy links to his writings are available in his episode's show notes. Johnny is a computational social scientist working with data science. He has experience at the Cato Institute, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and spent some time at our favorite George Mason University. He's a multiple-time founder, most recently of Practical Theta and Abreka, if I'm pronouncing that right. For some conversational context for our listeners, I work at Costco. So if it seems I am reaching in this conversation, it is because I am. (laughs) However, despite that professional divide, the most important thing to know about Johnny is that he is incredibly positive and kind, and he tweets absolute bangers. Johnny, welcome. Thank you, Nick. That was a lot of fun for me. I really, really like the way you do these intros. (laughs) So fair warning, I'm going to be jumping all over the place here. So apologies in advance, but let's get right into it. What do New Yorkers get wrong about the Bay Area? And what do San Franciscans get wrong about New York? Uh, You know, there's it's been really weird for me. There's a lot of animosity from both directions. And I I kind of am always going to be more the East Coast guy. I just that's my experience. I I do genuinely like the East coast a lot more. I think the thing they get wrong mostly is how similar they are. And I don't like to go into the, everything's about status, but like a lot of it for those two cities and those two areas in particular is this jockeying process that sort of just sounds like noise eventually. Um, You know, like I say, I, I do prefer the East coast. So there are differences but it really, they're big cities. You can find what you want in both of them. They're kind of large metropolitan areas. You can find the people you want to find there. And the differences are magnified in a weird way. How are they magnified? I think the, so for the East Coast people, they kind of view everyone in the Bay Area as this like really granola character. <laughs> and that's definitely true. It's, it, it is a profoundly different culture. But if you actually sit and talk with someone, like what they're actually, there isn't much distinction between their beliefs. There's a a different way of presenting it and kind of a different aesthetic to what they're saying, which rubs people the wrong way. And that's, that's definitely what aesthetics tend to do, but they're big cities. They're, they're big liberal cities and they kind of have the same feel to them. Well, I think you're kind of understating this because you wrote that, God, I miss New York. And, and later you said, oh, my God, I miss New York. And, uh, <laughs> and then you said, fucking hell, I miss New York. So, so, so tell me, what do you miss most about New York when you're not there? Um, you know, I think, I think it's me confusing exactly what I think other people do. The thing I miss most about New York is I have a lot of family here. I have a big group Uh of friends I've known since like fourth grade that, you know, we're still close. Like, I think it's unusual. We have a group of maybe 13 or 14 guys who have known each other forever and we still do stuff together. We still go on vacations. We still get, you know, Buffalo wings when I'm home. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I miss. Like there, I have friends in California, but we haven't accumulated this long history of experiences that turns Mm -hmm. it into something else that 
that turns it into feeling like family. Um, so the thing I actually miss about New York isn't really geographical or cultural. It's, mm. it's familial. Ah, okay. My experience is totally different from that. I was actually talking to a friend recently about this and like, I miss New York a lot too. Cause I, I lived in Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. And what I really miss about New York is being like downtown, meeting a friend for lunch, going to central park, reading a book, wandering around, and then walking up to a burger place in Harlem and like that entire interaction of being surrounded by people and, and the buzz and, and the vibe, it's, it's like indescribable and you can't even get it when you visit really, because when you yeah. live there, the fact that that is so close to you, it's, it's difficult not to identify with in a, in a deep way. And so you actually have a feeling about yourself when you live there that is like so beyond any one thing. It's so beyond pizza. Yeah. Infinite possibilities. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I haven't really replicated that in California. I probably could in San Francisco, but I'm kind of in the suburbs now too. So that's definitely one of the things I miss that I'm confusing what the actual thing I miss is. Um, New York is, I, I'll always say New York is the best city. It really does feel like infinite possibilities and infinite variety of people. But well, I, I don't live there now, so I, I gotta switch up my perspective, I guess. Yeah, I hope to visit soon. So I'm gonna make a hard left here. Uh, what is the noosphere and why is it useful frame for thinking about relationships and networks? So sometimes I feel like it's a bad phrase because it, it, it is too jargony or kind of too academic. Um, but it really kind of gets to this idea that we're embedded in something new. The way information and social relationships work now is profoundly different. I think in, in scale, um, geography doesn't really bind us as much. Time kind of works a little differently. But the problem is we're embedded in it. So it's, it's kind of like a fish in water type thing. If you don't have a word to kind of look at it, it, it's much more slippery. You can't really see it. So I think it's useful only in that if you use it as a frame, you get a little contrast that otherwise doesn't exist because of the embedding. In my podcast with Eigenrobot, we talked a bit about the difficulty of um, practicing psychology and the social sciences generally. I love to put that question to you regarding your field. What is wrong with how people practice the social sciences and how can it possibly be improved? I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I think it's one of the areas where me and Eigen have a lot in common and a lot uh, not in common. Mm -hmm. And I think the strongest answer for me would just be that very similar to his, it's just hard. Social science doesn't really have cause and the effect the way we want to be able mm -hmm. to tease it out. Like there is no A causes B causes C. It's, it's just this graph of things that loop back together. So the enterprise itself is difficult. This atom behaves like that atom. I can understand uh, people in groups behave in a way we can't interrogate. So for, for me, one of the things I liked about my field was there is a strong empirical side but we kind of look more for possible interactions and the emergent effects with, or in a way that kind of exposes us to a lot of criticism. People say, this is a toy model. It's not empirically grounded or it's just not empirically rigorous. And part of the point is that, you know, if you present me with an argument that says, here's this cause and effect in this very complicated, very complex social system, I'm just going to be skeptical of it. I'm, I'm going to think you found something, um, but you're, you're asserting stuff you can't assert. Whereas if you say, you know, here are these micro level effects that we're pretty sure about, um, and here are the macro level interactions or emergent effects that we think might happen when we simulate it, it seems to happen. I'm less skeptical of that. I think that's a great lens. So I guess that's not a strong criticism of my field. I just think it really is hard. And I think people who, who want to have this really concrete bit of empirical evidence that they can cite as this is what's happening are going to be permanently either disappointed that they don't get that 
mm-hmm. or they're going to be delusional and think they have that. Right. And David Deutsch approaches this from the perspective that quantum physics and epistemology and computation and evolution are all the same kind of thing. They're all the fabric of reality. And you approach social interaction um, computationally. What strengths do you think this gives you in looking at the social sciences? And do you think there might be any downsides to that? So I guess as a little bit of bias, it's kind of the way I think anyway. So, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the reason I really like it is because I really like it. It's a pathology, (laughs) but whatever, that's what's happening. Um, In terms of analyzing things with simulation and, and computationally, like, it is a really powerful lens. Um, being able to, to, to think about things with computers allows you to, it like extends your perception and extends what you can do. The downside of this is that you get, again, seduced by these computational models and forget that mm. they're just a little piece of reality. Um, one of the things that gets criticized a lot in belief systems is... Um, There are these like spin models from magnetics. Um, So they're using a physical analogy to understand how opinions propagate. And Mm -hmm. I think they're really useful lenses, but like people aren't atoms being magnetized. Uh, We're a lot more complicated than that. And if you forget that, you start not only drawing bad conclusions, but you start prescribing things and prescribing particular ways of solving problems that, you know, they apply to a system that's just a model, just this way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, that has some pretty bad consequences sometimes. You wrote that we can't easily identify which expressions differ because of conditional distributions and which differ because of unreliable samples or deception. When placed in these contexts, trust moves towards distrust. But before distrust becomes the mode, we're mixing beliefs together in a way that essentially integrates noise. That is, we're almost unlearning what we know about our environment in that context. When I first read this, I was just like, whoa, this this feels like, (laughs) to me, this feels like a unified theory that explains trust, why social boundaries exist, how polarization works, like everything. And then my second thought was, okay, I'm probably missing like a ton of the picture here. So uh, how am I off base? And what would you add to explain to the layman about how and why uh, trust works in our society? So I appreciate you saying that. Um, Part of the challenge for me is that I think I'm still learning how to kind of transcribe academic sounding research ideas and models into something that people can understand. And that's not a statement about how intelligent people are. It's just more like, it's a big complicated thing. How do you turn it into something where they can actually, in the amount of time they have, understand it? Um, so, you know, again, the the danger is this is a model that I have. The danger is reducing people to these like little automata who can't actually reason over things mm-hmm. and aren't actually thinking about them. This, this model is much more reactionary and it's a statement right. about the information that we have available to us. So, you know, the, there's this famous line that I'm going to borrow a little bit from political science. And it's like the perverse idea of that theory is that given incentives and information, people use them. Mm-hmm. And in online spaces, that's, you know, you have identity cues and you have information and to navigate, you need both, but there's actually more identity than information in most tweets. Um, got a little sidetracked there. Sorry. Um, so I guess I, I think it's important because we forget that we're just looking at like a tiny projection of someone through 280 characters. So like when someone, you know, typically on the left sees someone on the right and they say bot or when someone on the right looking on at someone on the left says NPC, that's what they're learning is an artifact of the information environment. It's, it's not actually a statement about a group. And they, they, once you start confusing the two, you start 
integrating the wrong thing. So it's especially bad when sometimes people just say this predictable person that I'm against said true. Okay, so now I'm going to say false because I, I think they're always wrong or something and I have a good model for them. That's the integrating noise part. When you start just negating something because it's you think it's adversarial and you think you know what they're going to say and you sort of observe it because of the environment, that does all sorts of bad stuff. So, so an example of this would be like, I'm friends with someone and then they say all lives matter. And then I completely throw away my interaction with them that I've had for the past year. And I just go, okay, you are this kind of person that I'm already aware of. So I'm just going to cut off or degreeble all of your nuance. And I'm going to, I'm going to put you in this box that I already have because it, it makes my interaction with reality a little bit lower cost. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's a great example. Like I hear that and there is a visceral reaction, like, okay, you know, I'm immediately a little off balance and a little, I think that's probably betraying something that I'm not going to like, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's also, and this is the part that I said is, is hard to, to kind of distinguish. It also probably means their experiences are different than mine or they're acting in a different environment. And if I decide I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say, I'm going to miss a lot of things that might be pretty vital. And right. like, so there's this example I can have um, of me acting badly. Uh, there, ah, shoot, I'm going to forget his name. I think it's Joel Guerrera. Um, back in the initial phase of COVID, there were people, I think in Ohio, protesting the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And I had some really off the cuff snarky thing about like, this is pretty stupid. Like, you know, this is making things worse for everyone else. Um, and he actually commented, uh, you know, we're mutuals. He commented, he's like, you know, I, I think they're just people who are worried about, you know, making rent type thing. Right. Um, and I, I am insulated from that. You know, I'm, I can work from home. I can still make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, my experiences don't allow me to really see that side of things unless I'm actively looking. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I'm using him because we do have a lot of other different beliefs, but like that was good for me. That helped me navigate and understand my world better. Um, and if I cut that off completely or just negated uh, what he was saying, mm-hmm. I would be worse for it. So you talked about how like how this integration of noise is um, a, a form of unlearning. And that made me wonder about the utility of that, like why we do that. And it reminded me of how you were talking about how attention is actually censorship. And so this, I thought of this is, is kind of like a form of, of censorship that when we see something and we distrust it, then we begin to censor it from the things that we believe are important. Is that how we should be thinking about this? I think that's part of it. And, you know, Twitter has a form of, uh, user controlled censorship with mutes and blocks. And mm-hmm. I'm more okay with that, um, like I'm okay with people censoring information they don't want because you know maybe it is really bad for them. I don't know. Uh, the more pathological part, the part that integrates noise, is when they start doing the negation thing, when they start believing this identity that I don't agree with is saying something. So it must be the opposite. That's what more what I mean about integration of noise. Um, but I do think. You know, I'm saying I'm okay with blocking and muting. I had a thread about this earlier today. If you take that too far, mm-hmm. it's, you know, again, you're, you're cutting off useful signal that isn't deception, isn't someone wrong. It's someone with different experiences. And that's the coolest part of social media is you can really see more of the world. Like other people get to share what they've found out. And if you cut that off too much, your, your understanding of things is going to be really limited and biased. Hmm. In the story, A Short Stay in Hell, hell is a place where you go through a finite but exceptionally large number of books looking for a single correct book. I think this is a good analogy for the way people approach today's low barrier to entry dating a la Tinder. In my interview with Visakhan Virasamy, we discussed moving from seeking novel relationships to committing and seeking nuance within a relationship. 
I'm curious how you think of this in terms of, of trust and development of relationships and like our overall social fabric, the fact that our interactions and relationships are so low barrier now, um, I feel like the mechanism that pushes us from seeking novelty to seeking nuance is um, makes us just more generalists. And we're less likely to dig down into specific things because it's so easy to just consume anything. What do you think about that? So that whole segment with Visa was really great. And I think he kind of gets to it. You know, he was talking about that. There's almost like a phase transition from novelty to something else, mm -hmm. um, to something right. more. And I think you're absolutely correct. Like without commitment, we the experience that we have are different than with commitment. And, you know, this is kind of an old political science thing, too, where we're talking about, like, our community bonds aren't as stronger anymore, as strong as they used to be. Uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to say whether that's true or not, obviously. Um, but I, I really do think the lack of strong commitments and the lack of strong community does something. And that's kind of why I wrote in the other post that we're learning to navigate this new space of something. And we're finding what's reliable because we don't really have the, the strong commitments we're, we're previously used to because it's ephemeral, because it's a lower barrier of entry. I don't necessarily know that. I don't think that has to be bad. I think that's just the world is changing in a profound way and we're trying to figure out what works. Um, but to me, you know, like I spent my 20s um, not really engaged in anything like a commitment. Um, and then, you know, marriage and, and dating with commitment, it's a profoundly different and richer experience. And it's also hard to convince people from the never commitment environment that it's, you know, good and better. Like you actually have to experience it to understand that. And that's, right. that's hard to communicate. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I feel like the deeper we dig into any of this stuff from any angle, you just ultimately hit the rock bottom, which is like, what is good? And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that here. <laughs> but, um, but speaking of political science, you wrote that some people deliberately manipulate expression so that one group sees antagonism and the other sees banal statement. It's particularly effective because if you can't see the skilled manipulation, everyone asserting it looks like they're wildly delusional. Bad faith is what you say when you smell this pattern. You could call this many things. One would be like a dog whistle. Another would be trolling. I covered this a bit in my talks with Eigenrobot when we talked about ask culture, which is a less nuanced and more direct form of communication versus guest culture, which is speaking in a more opaque, perhaps even political way. Can you expand on how you think about the use of opaque language regarding integrity and trust? So I actually, it's, you know, it's complicated, which is kind of a punt, um, <laughs> you know, but being illegible has some like pretty cool benefits um, mm -hmm. for, for the people who can see kind of what's behind that and have the, you know, the background to like make it legible. It's, really useful because it lets you indirectly get at things that otherwise would be subject to like social social censor mm -hmm. um the problem with that is people see the illegible thing um who aren't going to be as friendly are going to see other cues and they're just gonna you know figure out what you're saying or figure out what they want you to be saying to like satisfy their expectations mm -hmm. um so it is kind of you know, you get the benefits of being able to speak about something in a way that is clear to the people you probably want to reach. Right. Um, but it gets harder to do the more social attention is on you. So like for people who have high followings, sometimes they'll do this, but it doesn't work anymore because mm. people are going to figure out what they're trying to say and they're no longer being indirect. They're just going to be like, exactly the villain or whatever that people want them to be anyway. Right. Um, so it's a scaling problem, which is a lot of social media. Like some strategies are great at a particular level. It really lets you explore things. Um, but that exploration gets narrower and narrower and narrow as, as they become super nodes. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like this is connected to uh, a critique of the left 
Uh, Wesley Yang wrote that the successor ideology is what happens when ideas meant to encourage critical self-reflection become a part of an echo chamber and grow increasingly divorced from reality. The list takes on the coloration of every romantic, reactionary, and left-wing shibboleth ever created. An example of this would be the radicalization of many students at various universities that we've, we've seen over the past like 10 years or so. Uh, you seem to agree to the danger of this idea when you wrote about the right and parlor that out of sight, out of mind, and into commercialized hate breeder reactors may not be a good strategy. That this kind of like geographical separation of individuals or, or concentration of individuals um, creates this, this incredible polarization. Can you tell me a bit about what social institutions can do to prevent this kind of echo chamber? Um, so I'm not really sure what social institutions can do. I think I'll say on an individual level, you're asking me the, the, a little bit higher than that. I think the individual is great. It's not going to work. Um, it's not going to scale in the right way. Um, uh, Liminal Warmth had the great thing about how welcoming uh, your community is and kind of how accepting of ideas and also how rudeness gets penalized. Mm -hmm. That's great. Those are great norms. I don't know how that's going to scale. Add in, right. um, and, and I, I agree with that whole thing. I think that's actually a great uh, set of norms. At the institutional level, I think nothing changes until users actually get some semblance of agency. Right. Um, and I don't mean out, you know, algorithms bad. I think they're they're pretty cool. I think if you did away with the algorithms, we'd have a lot of the same effects. Um, amplification works the same way with smart people trying to compete for attention. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the only thing that solves this is being able to say, like, you know. I have this stream of information right now. It's I'm kind of like the guy in clockwork orange with my eyes taped open. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty much okay with like algorithms mediating the opposite of just amplification. Like if there's something I don't want to engage with or something that's clearly just compelling groups of people to just belligerently combat each other, right. I'm okay with a computer, my computer making decision. Like I, I, I can skip this. Um, like the example today was, uh, you know, gun girl is in my feed again. Mm -hmm. And at no point in my life, do I ever need that information? It's, it's pure <laughs> noise. Um, right. and it's meant to be like, it's a troll. Um, and, and there's examples from every group left or right. I want the ability for, for me to exercise agency, um, through an algorithm, through a bot, whatever you want to call it. Right. But I would like to be able to filter stuff. And I don't think anything really changes until we can. Um, because, you know, until that point, all of the spectacles are really visible. Even if you're not directly interacting with them, you get the experience mm -hmm. of like, hey, this person was talking about that. And this person was talking about that. Um, I thought they were unconnected. But it turns out it's like the guy of the day on the internet everyone's commenting about. So, you know, we're, we're kind of synchronizing in a bad way. I just right. want to change that. Yeah, I look forward to a Twitter where I have a lot more customization options with like, uh, like lists are so clunky. They and, are. And, <laughs> you know, if, if I could just have five different timelines that are exactly like timelines, but are kind of more thematic, like that would be so nice. Um, but it, it's not it's not really here right now unless unless you want to like do some kind of self-solution with programming that is way beyond my capability but yeah. uh but i look well, forward to that yeah even the thing you know I, I i do use a lot of twitter's api and they are their api is better than everyone else out there right now uh-huh but you know unless the client's controllable you're kind of at a loss and twitter has right. previously said hey don't make clients we're not okay with that mm. um and, and you know like you're saying lists are clunky block lists are in my opinion, really bad uh, because mm -hmm. of the way they segment the space. Right. Um, I think if everyone had this kind of like algorithmic store or, you know, bring your algorithm, algorithmic app store or something like that, where people can really play and, and create this lots of different in interaction structures and different incentive structures over the social graph, like that's my ideal environment. And we were talking about how uh, we, we censor individuals or, or like, make people simpler when we distrust their views and um, speaking on the complexity of society and our place in it 
you've written, if you're seeking a neat resolution, you're fighting an intractable battle against an only partially observable adversary, or worse, if you're tearing out any and all connections that don't suit you subjectively, you're building towards a resolution by calamitous social dissolution. That sounds bad. The best you can do, <laughs> use good heuristics, unflatten socio-political reality. Let it be the big complex mess that it is. This gets into our relationships with chaos and order and the dangers of tyranny. How should we think about ordering the world in such a way that is beneficial rather than destructive in these social spaces? So this is kind of similar to the question I was asking earlier, but I think about it in terms of like, like um, cutting down an ecosystem in order to plant a farm. And this is kind of what we're doing by this calamitous social dissolution. And that's how we're losing kind of all of this social technology that we've built up over years. So how, how can we move towards a more beneficial ecosystem, if not in practice, at least in theory? Yeah, so monocropping is bad. Um, <laughs> right. And it, it's bad in a way that we don't necessarily see until we get the blight that eventually comes, right. um, you know, in terms of heuristics, you know, a lot of people advocate for pluralism um, and the ability to have open discourse and, you know, let people talk about things, let people talk about their experience. It's really hard to actually live that way. Right. Um, and I'm not saying I'm any better at it. Like if you look at 2016 to 2020, I'm sure there are some things I've said or did that would make me cringe or, or just, you know, be disappointed with myself. Mm -hmm. um, so at an individual level, it really does require a lot of effort. Um, but again, that that effort is hard to maintain, which is why I think like, can you hear that? Sorry, let me close my window. Yeah, it's no big deal. Um, so, so basically, like, I'm a big fan of like the individual heuristics and like just learning to like, people are messy, people are complicated heroes are bad, villains are bad. They, they kind of make you see reality in a, a, a way that's much more simpler than it is. Um, but at the same time, like maybe not don't feel bad, but like kind of don't feel bad about yourself because it, you're kind of learning in an environment that compels this type of behavior and belief. Mm -hmm. So if you want to advocate for a change and, and make an environment that allows those heuristics to function better, you kind of have to like point to the environment and say like, we should probably change this part of it or mm -hmm. we should have more agency over it. Yeah. So, so trying to give more people more agency in a system that also allows people to interact openly and, and doesn't silo people quite as much. Am I understanding that right? You know, it, I, I think the power of social media is that any two people can interact at any time. Right. If that interaction isn't consensual, Definitely. The environment has to be able to inhibit those um, and inhibit those in a systematic way. But also, like, if you start doing that heuristically, that like anyone who has a different opinion than you, anyone who seems to have a different set of experiences from you uh, is wrong about life, reality, whatever they're talking about, you're just going to start making the same type of error. Um, so if you want to be open and you think open is a good norm, like you kind of have right. to believe in openness so essentially like culturally incentivizing the correct approach it's kind of like how we were talking earlier about how it's good to be in a community that really looks down on and pushes out people that are negative to one another and really really promotes differences of ideas but how how you can do that intentionally um have that variety is uh i think it's it's an interesting thing to try to tackle, but obviously it's going to be really difficult. But uh, I wanted to move on to this quote that you are always tweeting. Uh, you're clearly a fan of Herbert Simon. Every day you tweet that the design principle that attention is scarce and must be preserved is very different from a principle of the more information, the better. Uh, it looks like this quote led you to asking, are we designing for an information rich world? And it kind of motivated a lot of the things that you work on today. Uh, I imagine you are very, you have a very nuanced interpretation of this quote. Can you explain what you think about it and, and why it's so important? And uh... so I, I think it almost gets back to what you and Visa were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of information environments select for that cheap novelty. 
um, because there's all this available information or, or just distractions and stuff like that. And a lot of time, that's not really what we want. Um, mm. and, and designing for things, you know, that's what Herbert Sharma is trying to say, designing things that recognize attention is scarce, that you might want to actually do something or you're actually looking for a particular region of like information, that's, that's a very different consideration. And social media isn't really optimized for that. Um, and I, I, again, I don't think that is limited to algorithmically mediated timelines. I think that's just how the environment works. Um, and that has some, some pretty big upsides too, but again, I, I can't really control it in the way I'd want to. I think it's attention being scarce is really just not a principle. So like my opinion isn't particularly nuanced on this. I thought it was a brilliant speech from, I think it was the 60s, um, that really anticipated all the problems we're experiencing right now. Uh, information overload. You know, I kind of really like this overload. It's it's a space I thrive in. My attention kind of does jump all over the place. Yeah. Um, but there's no way for me to really at any point say stop uh, or like change the shape of things so that I'm playing a different type of game. Um, so, so that's just, I think the distinction between the two environments is important. And sometimes you want the one that's uh, just like overload. That's fun too. Right. But no one really designs for both and I think very few, there are fewer financial incentives to design for information scarcity. Right. And this, this reminds me of like how uh, David Perel talks about um, the paradox of abundance, how um, it, it creates so much noise for people that don't have an intentional way of navigating it. And yet it is an extreme area of wealth for the people that can navigate it. And then we have uh, Daniel Ingram, who, who talks about how the most important thing is the ability to concentrate and to to exercise one's attention. So um, I feel like that's that's the the tension that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in this society, is that it's so much more difficult to have attention compared to like the '90s, where if you're standing in a line, you don't really <laughs> have a choice to be doing anything else, versus now, where you could be anywhere doing anything really with your mind. So yeah, I, I feel like that's one of the, the major problems facing everyone today. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's a great, you know, spectrum to put it on too. It's um, you absolutely have to be able to, to concentrate. Like it, it is a skill you have to have, mm -hmm. um, but your inf you know, your environment shouldn't be fighting that as much as it is. Yeah. Edward O. Wilson once said we have, Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. I've probably seen this a hundred times on the Twitter feed, and uh, people love quoting this. What What do you think about that statement? Is it Is it accurate? Uh, I kind of not snobby, but I, I just really dislike it. I think people who say it have this. And it's a dangerous word to use in this context, but like hyper rationalistic interpretation mm. of how we're figuring stuff out in the world. Right. Um, and, and Chaos Prime had a great tweet about this that I, I can't recall the exact quote of right now, but like a lot of searching for good solutions is really sloppy. Um, and we have to kind of, you know, fuck around and find out. And a lot of that's, right. you know, a bad process. I I think that's part of what makes us incredibly robust uh as a species uh, as a group of people so like that's not paleolithic like that's that's the core of our strength and casting it as like oh this is an outdated um you know we're fit for a different environment i think the point is that like people are fit for pretty much any environment you throw them in as people we solve stuff together we share information and, and we figure out how to navigate um so, so to, to say that like emotions are just this thing that like compels damage, uh, that's, that's not true. Like that's, that's one of the things that help us figure out what's worth spending our attention on in an environment that's always changing. Um, and always will be as, as long as we're, we're still, you know, alive. So you're kind of, you're kind of answering a question I wanted to ask you, but I'm going to get into it anyway, because you might be able to expand a bit. 
But, uh, but like we're talking about tribes and social separation and trust and you're bringing up rationality and the centrally formative dichotomy in my own Twitter sphere is like the rationalist versus the post-rationalist and rationalists who admittedly hate to be defined. So here I go. Are people that <laughs> are people that believe critical thinking is like the superior way to interact with the world. They love thinking fast and slow, and they talk about system one versus system two. They believe that the intelligent way to approach the world is argument first. Uh, the alternative being intuition, which is sometimes useful, sometimes necessary, um, but can get us into trouble. Effective altruism would be like a, a rationalist approach to altruism because they're, they're trying to maximize something. Uh, Post-rationalists believe rationality is a small part of our direct experience of the world, an experience that cannot be reduced to consequences or utility or Bayesianism, etc. I'll make a quick note here that I don't know what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so feel, anybody that's listening, feel free to attack me on this. You know, I'm, I'm figuring this out as I go. But anyway, you, you've said that people are not rational in decision making and behavior. Can you say more about what you mean when you say that people are not rational? Uh, I guess, you know, this is part of the territory where I guess I find common ground with uh, the post rats, mm -hmm. um, which is funny. You know, I've, I've found myself more in, in that sphere. Um, not directly. It's kind of Twitter has kind of sucked me in. Like I say things that people in that space appreciate. And then I kind of see them saying things I uh, agree with. So like, that's my exposure. It's this like ambient perception of post rats. I haven't really sought it out um, or rationalist really. So I, I'm probably bad at the the boundaries between the two also. Um, mm. But, you know, mostly I think we act and then we go back and we rationalize why we acted that way. We, we come up with good stories and um, good narratives for what we did that is usually just justification. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the things that we're producing in those rationalizations aren't like, aren't bullshit. We're like, that's how we negotiate subsequently, like what are the rules of the game and what right. incentive structures apply. It's this process of inference that doesn't really take as much conscious, careful deliberation as, as some people think it does. Right. It's more the evolutionary perspective. We're stumbling around to find structures that sort of work, that let us get along. Um, and, and those are rationalizations that right. happen to also, you know, if you go the other way, oh, look, this is why things happen. Um, right. And it's like, no, no, those are just, those are the words we use to bind those things and, and to keep them going that way. Um, but the cause and effect is backwards. Yeah. And to, and to pull this out of theory and put it into practicality, like I'll, I'll give a, I guess a post-rat approach to something I'm doing, which is that my car lease is up in May. And so instead of trying to optimize what my next car will be, I just kind of like, was like, oh, I'll just wait until I get an answer. And so yeah, I, didn't yeah, think yeah. About, I didn't think about it at all. And now here we are at the end of March and I was, and I'm just like, hey, you know what? I don't have any desire to be in a new vehicle. I'm fine. So why don't I just buy this car? And then, you know, if I want something else in the future, I'll just get rid of it. Like that wasn't, that wasn't, I, I didn't do any calculating in that. I just like felt it out, you know, yeah. and like, it feels fine. Like, and it's this kind of thing where if I can just trust myself all of the time and say, I can trust myself now. And in the future, I'm going to trust myself then too, no matter what, then I, I don't need to be living in anxiety about optimizing things all the time, which I, I get that's not like rationality is more than anxiety, but I, I think trying to tyrannize one's entire life through calculation is a little bit about that. And this reminds me of kind of like uh, Zuckerberg, who, who you've referred to as Zuckerborg. Can you? <laughs> I shouldn't you, do that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about like what you have against Facebook or, or Zuckerberg specifically? Uh, you know, the, the one quote that I've quoted a few times, um, I think Visa quoted a few times too, but like, you know, people wear a lot of masks and right. it's not disingenuous. It's, it's just like how we function. Um, mm -hmm. You're, you know, even to people you're really intimate with, uh, you're a few different people. And, you know, 
how you relate to them isn't necessarily the whole spectrum of yourself. Um, so saying you have to have one identity, one mask, and, and that it's somehow wrong to have multiple ones, that's a fundamentally flawed view of how people work. And that bothers me is uh, bothers me because he has an incredible influence in how people exchange information. Um, you know, Facebook is just this behemoth that gets to uh, not dictate because you know it's 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 an environment that we have that we play in, and we're not again automatons. But if that perspective is informing his design decisions and and how he makes decisions at Facebook. Uh, that that kind of scares me. Um, we should be able to have lots of different identities. Uh, we should be able to play with them. We should be able to wear masks. That's that's how people work. Right. People wanted me to ask you about uh, the future of like social technology. Um, I don't I don't know if you're much of a futurist or if you want to if you want to touch on that. What I'm more curious about are like what in your mind are the most interesting problems in the in the near future in the, in the immediate future and uh like what do you think not even necessarily you but people should be trying to solve in this in the space of like um twitter and social networks uh so again it kind of goes back to the medium itself should just kind of be this thing that lets us propagate messages mm-hmm. and then everything else should be we get to decide Um, You know, it's this medium that if you write apps, you can share them and people can use them and that that changes the shape of the environment. Um, If you don't program, there should be enough, you know, extensible stuff that you can really shape things the way you want. Uh, I think we're going in that way almost by accident. I think all of the recent efforts to to ban groups from platforms Mm -hmm. is going to compel a situation where things are more peer to peer or uh, censorship resistant. And if we get that, we're probably going to get people who, who want more ability to, to shape the environment. Um, I mostly care about the environment shaping part. I think the censorship resistance part is less important. Um, but if we get the latter from the former, I'm okay with it. So I'm, I'm starting to get an idea of, of kind of the shape of this problem. Um, and like a, a quote that comes to mind, as you said, I think you said freedom of reach is not freedom of speech. And so, so I think that this is what you're talking about, right? Like that reach is what we, what we want. Outreach is good, but that has to be balanced out by permission and by consent. Um, am I, am I right on that? How should we be improving that? I, I don't know if you have anything more to say. No, that's that's a pretty great summary. Um, I'm trying to forget or trying to remember who actually said that, whose quote that is. Um, mm-hmm. I want to say maybe No Upside is the one who popularized it, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is a great way of characterizing the problem. Like when you say, um, like when Infowars got banned, everyone was saying, you know, this is censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he's still in my feed all the time. So it's not like the information itself was banned. It's just like, hey, you're a bad participant in this environment. And the effect of that is a lot of people are wasting their time Um, and they feel that way too, but they don't have the tools to, to, to like inhibit it. Um, So again, it's a platform problem. Like for, for want of the correct tools, they're using this really kludgy thing um, of like the ban hammer. Uh, And that's mostly for like fiduciary responsibility. Like I think they're just discharging toxic assets that like lower their, total network value it's it's not um it's less a function of like you know this is bad for society it's more a function of like hey look this is screwing up our metrics in a way we don't want again if attention is scarce and someone figures out an exploit that seems to get a bunch of it uh attenuating that is not blocking free speech uh it's blocking people who are taking attention from other areas of speech so it's it's a form of denial of service attack that looks Mm -hmm. a lot like inhibiting free speech, just not for the person that everyone is defending. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And the way I talk to a lot of people about this, and I feel like the way a lot of people think about this is they, they kind of think about the tribe, like the way we, we evolved into certain groups and they think of the, the tribe as like a schema and 
you approach it from a, a different point of view, which is basically just that um, that humans kind of have all of these different skills that each individually adapt to the environment. And for a long period of time, that environment um, was optimized for, for the tribe. And like, this is where trust comes in and where beliefs come in. And, and everybody thinks Dunbar's numbers is, is 150 because of this whole tribal thing going on. But you're saying, no, it's quadratic. Um, so all of this is just leading up to my question, which is like, what are collision spaces and how, how should we think of them? Okay, so the, the the problem with these these collision spaces, is, you know, I tried to lay this out, but it's still really hard, and I'm kind of feeling my way mm-hmm. to find a good way of communicating it. Um, but the problem with com- uh, collision spaces is mostly one, it's this projection of what different groups of people believe from their experiences. Like there there's some correlation between their identity and their experience that makes them more likely to say something than something else. Um, but collision spaces synchronize it so that everyone is pointing to the same thing and they feel compelled to take a position. Um, and I think the best example of showing this is actually one of Visa's threads, you know, he does the thing like uh, blah, blah, blah tweet that everyone's talking about that he doesn't actually talk about, but it's kind of making fun that everyone's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually like a really good log of what's happening as a collision space. Right. Um, so. But the information provided in that context is like, I took a position, that person took a position, we seem to be taking different positions. The actual event isn't meaningless, or it doesn't have much meaning. If I look back on it, I probably wouldn't actually care. But the part I learned in that environment was, this identity is against me, that identity is for me. And I take that into the next synchronous context. Um, and, And it's because they're synchronous, because they're so reliable, and they're almost... it's a feedback, almost self-fulfilling prophecy of reliability. Uh, We start to think the identity cues are all we need to make the decision. Um, Mm. And and that's where once we start doing that, we get to the negation thing where I don't need to actually think about this. I don't need to deliberate on this. I don't need to judge it. I have this identity cue. I could just invert it and I know what the correct answer is, Um, which just doesn't work. And, and, And the more time we spend in those spaces, that social media seems to select for, the less we actually know about our world and the more we know about who's an adversary in this really artificial context um, of online that's just an artifact of the environment. What I wonder, and this is this is all speculation, but what I wonder is we're coming out of the uh, coronavirus where everybody was increasingly forced into the space that you're talking about with online social networks. And I, I wonder if, if that will lead into people being more remote, more zoom oriented, um, treating that social networks as, as like increasingly the way we interact or whether there might actually be a swing of the pendulum in the opposite direction where people are just sick of it. And I mean, maybe, maybe we'll have both. Uh, yeah, that, that whole vein of thought, I think is like, a pretty critical question for the near uh, near future. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the right answer is. Um, me personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing people in like right. a space where I get to interact with them, like in every way. Like you know, there's communication in person has a lot more information. Right. Um, I I hope that we start to navigate like new solutions. Um, you know, Sonia and um, uh, Anna got like I guess it was two years ago, three years ago, kind of organized it. So like a bunch of Twitter people met in San Francisco. Um, And it was a great experience like to see, you know, like, hey, this person's a lot more than they are online because we can have a conversation that's rich. Um, I hope there's more of that. I think, again, the online is great because anyone in the world can reach anyone in the world at any moment. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't work that offline because there's a geographical problem. And that's the beauty of social networks is, it allows any two people to talk. Um, right. But I, I do hope social makes it a little bit easier to like div- uh, to erase the, you know, IRL online divide because it is kind of artificial. Um, mm. we, we, like you said, we, we do spend a lot of time online. It's, it's not a fake place. It's, it's a real mm. environment. Um, but I think being able to socialize grounds us, uh, being able to socialize offline grounds us in a really important way. 
Um, so that that's that's kind of I don't know if that's the future. I that's kind of more what I hope is happening. Um, that we can switch up the spaces in a useful way. Yeah, and there's there's something to be said for fidelity as well. That there there are people I spent months talking to on Twitter, you know, and and hours really, and then within an hour of having them on my podcast, I I could tell this immediately that there was so much more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like mind blowing that I mean, not even not even meeting in person, but but just talking, it's just like there's there's so much more richness that it it just feels like if we if we are moving towards this increasingly Twitter-like world, that says something about an increased social poverty of a kind yeah. that I, I I hope we find a happy medium. You know where we're not only interacting with the people we work with. That's uh, that's a great way to put it. Um, the poverty of it, um, and it's actually one of the reasons I liked your podcast because I'm I'm seeing people that I regularly interact with on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and when you have them on, it's like, oh wow, this is this is cool. Um, you know, I'm I'm a spectator, but it's a lot richer, and I I get to color in a lot of them that right now was just like this little you know bits and pieces of of who they are. Mm-hmm. So we're we're talking about the the future of uh, returning to social intimacy, but for you, that's not actually the future. That's like right now, right? Aren't you, aren't you visiting family? Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, so this is the first time I I waited for my parents to both get vaccinated, uh, uh, and, and literally like two weeks after, um, you know, after their their vaccine was effective, I flew back to New Jersey to to see them. How's that going? Like, are you guys are you in quarantine or? So we kind of are, um, you know, there's there's still a few members of my family that I want to see um, uh-huh. that haven't been vaccinated and are a little bit older. Um, right. So we're, I, I'm not visiting friends this time, which which is kind of like uh, a little bit tantalizing. Like, I really want to go hang out, but I, I'm avoiding that this time. Um, but it is, you know, like we've been doing the FaceTime thing. We've been doing the Zoom thing. And that, especially for family, that doesn't really compare to me. So one question I've, I've wanted to ask you is, uh, you, you're a pretty prolific reader. What fiction should nerds like us read? Like, what do you suggest that you think a lot of people haven't uh, delved into? That's hard because I think everyone listening to your podcast probably reads very similarly uh, mm-hmm. to me. Um, I really like sci-fi. I think, uh, for the way my brain works, sci-fi lets me be like analytical and not at the same time to like mm. explore really cool ideas. So one thing that I'd maybe recommend for people who like sci-fi a little mm-hmm. bit more that I'm not sure would be as popular in, in, in this space would be uh, The Dispossessed, mm. um, which, you know, the original title was Better and Ambiguous Utopia. Um, it's one of this, the, the sci-fi books that I read recently that was like, mm-hmm. it really leaned into the ambiguous aspect. Like by the time I finished, I wasn't sure. Um, I, I, I knew what the sort of rough argument was, but like, I wasn't sure what she was really advocating for. Um, and I, I think she was just kind of showing like all of the trade-offs and like, here are the good parts, here are the bad parts of, of this particular way of organizing people of this particular way of organizing people. And I think that's really rare. Um, even in sci-fi, um, most of what I read has a message, like a strong unambiguous message. So leaning into ambiguity is useful to me. Cause I think, again, that's things are messy. I think that's a much more accurate portrayal, although it's less satisfying. I, you know, I want the bad guys to win. So I want or the good guys to win. So I want clear bad guys. And it's also, it's also harder, right? So it's, it's like, it's more, it's less satisfying rather, but yeah. it's also harder to write complexity. So it's like, you got to really love uh, that type of communication in order to put forth that much effort. And uh, in your writing, you often reference nonfiction. What nonfiction do you think is the most formative for your worldview? Um, I think the title of the book was uh, The Origins of Wealth. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong on this, but it was basically the first book that was close to computational social science. And it was kind of analyzing what people do in a way that shows like a lot of the effects are emergent. So like you couldn't look at the system and say like, this is what's going to happen. Um, right. 
they were these interactions that like we were really bad at thinking about. Hmm. Um, I think the the Red Queen, uh, Matt Ridley was another one a long time ago, although I'm not sure I would even like it at this point. Um, but like that style of book where it's it's really talking about evolutionary arguments and how there's like this interaction between the participants and the environment that are hard to predict. Um, because I think they manifest very frequently and very readily. And if you're not used to thinking about them, you adopt this perspective that like, this is an intended engineered effect of the system. Um, when a lot of times, if not most of the time, it's, it's just what happens. And we have to like, if, the, if, if it's a problem, we have to try to reshape it. Um, but there's, it's not Hanlon's razor uh, of that, like you shouldn't attribute it to malice. Um, but a lot of times it's like, that's not even part of the process. Like people really thought this was going to be a good thing and it would work out. Um, and then it turns out, you know, we, when we actually simulate it by doing it, totally different things happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those funny things where, um, people are constantly trying to do good and to be in control of the, of the consequences of certain actions. And if you're really honest and you really look, you could see some things where like you that maybe made you cringe, but actually made you into a totally better person. And then other things that seemed like really good choices on the face, but were actually destructive. And uh, I, I think the hardest thing is for people just to kind of like go of that and just see, oh, like, yeah, yeah, we, we do live in a really messy world. And maybe I can just live in the moment and uh, and be cool. Oh, I will say this though. I just, just to, just to clarify one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I guess I'm more of a, you should be taking a stance on things, sure. not on everything. Cause that's just really sloppy, but yeah. like you should be staking something. Um, you should care and try, um, but just understand that like, you're going to be wrong most of the time. <laughs> and if you beat yourself right. up over it and if you beat up everyone else over it, you're just going to frustrate like your actual goals. Right. And having, having a stake is a huge component of deriving meaning from interaction, right? Yeah. Like even if it's just having a bet on a game, you know, even if it's $10, it'll actually make it significantly more meaningful to you and it will increase the vibrancy of, of life overall. So I 100% I agree with that. Um, I guess my take is just more that that we, we should be less tyrannical over others and ourselves and uh, find a way to make life more meaningful and per pursue that perhaps instead of simply trying to maximize for things that are not that. But finally, with respect to your field, here, here's a, a really big question that's probably impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it just as a way to try and summarize things. Uh, with respect to your field and your depth of knowledge, what advice do you have for people if they want to better navigate collision spaces and have better social experiences and cultivate more meaningful interaction, which is what I think people really should be aiming for. And so how, how can people move toward a, a better, healthier and happier life um, with all of this thinking in mind as it concerns belief and trust and, and uh, these systems of, of social networking and going about our lives in a more um, invested and intentional way? Um, this might be a really bad answer, but, uh, it's the one I want to make, mm -hmm. uh, read more fiction. Um, you know, for belief systems, I think I learned more from Neil Gaiman than anyone else. Mm. Um, understanding what, you know, what beliefs are and what they mean to us and, and how we are using them to, to make meaning mm. is hard. Um, and fiction lets you explore perspectives that you tend to get invested in. Right. So it, it might be a story, it might be make believe, but like there's something real there. Uh, so I don't think you need the like rigorous academic stuff to see that. I, th I think fiction is, um, much better at doing that. Or if you do want one little guide, I'll actually recommend, uh, Nick, uh, I'm going to forget his last name. I recommended him last week. He has this book called Unflattening, which is a graphic novel mm -hmm. that's pretty much about belief systems and it, it's really digestible. And I, I think it really gets to, you know, nothing you have to unflatten things and and figure out how to to see people as people and, and to see them as rich yeah and that novel is uh unflattening by nick susanis i think yeah i don't know how to pronounce it but it's s-o-u-s-a-n-i-s -S. do you have any questions for me before we wrap up I'm not sure. I, I am a little curious how you got started in this. I read some of your biography recently in that uh, the thread. Um, uh -huh. But like, 
to me, you know, I, I started seeing you in my little social media orbit type thing. Um, <laughs> and now I see you a lot. And it, it's really, I think your guide on how you're using Twitter um, was really explicit and useful. Like saying what you're there for really sets the context well. Um, like I'm not, it's not ambiguous. I know how you want to use this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did how did you get started in podcasting? And uh-huh. is this an extension of that guide you kind of published on Twitter? Hmm. So the, all of it is actually like an accident. Um, like, so, so the whole reason I was on Twitter reaches pretty far back and it's just like a, a tumbling forward. But um, I've heard that essentially that like you shouldn't write a book unless the alternative of not writing a book is more costly than writing the book, right? Like that the detriment to your life of not writing that okay. book is so much worse than the writing of the book. And that's kind of how I felt when it came to the podcast. It was like, it, it was something that had been weighing down on me. And I just felt like if I don't try this, I'm I'm just gonna feel much worse every day. And I was like, I would listen to other podcasts and be like, I could do that. And, you know, like I, I would be listening, I've listened to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours in podcasts. And I, I just love that, uh, that I, I kind of get when there's a good question or a bad question and feeling that out. And once I started doing it, I was, I was just like, it's so fun because like, I have a list of questions here. And while people are talking, I can kind of tell where I might want to go with it, how I might want to interact with it. And the whole thing is just so fun. So uh, I, I just have a great respect um, for podcasts and, and podcasters. And I thought that, you know, there, there's the great possible result of this being a service to everyone else and, and that, you know, they could, they could extract some value from it. You know, I, I guess it's some exercise in, in feeling like I'm giving to the world, but it's also just inherently enjoyable in and of itself. Like if I never published any of these, the fact that I get to have an intimate conversation with people is awesome. And yeah. I get to sit there and like, every day when do we get to sit down with somebody for an hour and just have like a concentrated a concentrated conversation where no one's looking at their phones everybody's dialed in and they're really trying and the fact that this has an audience just allows me to kind of put people in the position where they're really talking to me and um having that for me is such a luxury that there's no reason for me not to do it. Like people are like, oh, what about like, do you want to make money? Or like, who cares about money? Like I'm here to have a valuable interaction. Like that's what I want. That's what a lot of people don't get anywhere. They don't get it from Twitter. They don't get it from work. So for me, this this is like super fun. And, uh, and it always seemed really important for me to start. And, and so here I am. Yeah. That's a great answer. And I'm, I'm really glad you have, like I said, I, this is, I enjoy your podcast and I enjoy seeing those deeper perspectives that you're talking about um, from people. I kind of get a sideways glimpse at in other ways. Um, and I think you do a great job about it. The asking questions part is just, it's been killer in everyone I listen to. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Johnny. I, you were an incredible guest. I love how you think so deeply uh, about these things that, I, I'm just genuinely fascinated in, and uh, I really look forward to continuing our conversations and, and seeing you on Twitter. Thank you so much. Yep, and thank you. This was my first podcast, and it was a lot of fun for me. Johnny is such a lovely guy. I really enjoyed that. You can find him at Generativist on Twitter and generativist.falsifiable.com. If you enjoy this show, you can support me by subscribing on becomingcreature.substack.com. It's absolutely free. I'd love if you rated the show, and I always love to hear feedback from my listeners. A big thank you to Murphy Chicken and Frank IV for the music, and thank you to Four Shaper for the art. I will see you next time.